Welcome to Understanding the Law Radio, your business success and legal information station. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Well, hi, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Understanding the Law Radio. I'm your host, Peter Lamont. Today, we've got a fun show. Today, we're going to be talking about something that has become a cultural phenomenon. It started, let's say, late 60s, early 70s. And it has taken our world by storm and your children. And if you do have kids, you would never go on a road trip that's longer than, let's say, 45 minutes without making sure that they have one of them with them. Any idea what I'm talking about? Well, let me give you another hint. That's right. Today we're going to be talking about video game lawsuits. They're actually really, really fascinating. And I I think you can see as we go through and discuss some of these lawsuits, how it has set the stage and the tone for so many of the legal battles that we see today, primarily involving copyright infringement and that sort of thing. So some of these are, are like seminal cases, and they're really, really interesting. So before you switch away and you say, who wants to hear about a, a video game lawsuit, just bear with me for a few minutes because this is actually some, some fun and interesting stuff. So I want to talk about um, some of the top video game lawsuits that are out there and focus a little bit more on one in particular, which we'll get to in a minute. But uh, I think that you're going to find this interesting. Let's start with Pong. Who remembers Pong? That was the game. It was like in a, in a table console. They used to have it at bars and, and arcades. Remember arcades, by the way? Um, and you would sit down. And there would be these horizontal or vertical, depending upon the way you were standing, lines. And you had to hit this little ball, this little digital ball, back and forth. It was like ping pong in in digital format. And it was probably one of the first video games that, that became, I don't know, massively successful. Everybody played pong. And if you... Think back to 1972, and this is when Atari had built the table tennis electronic Pong game. They were switching it over to become um, a a console game for, for the Atari. But before they did that, they ended up being sued by Magnavox because Magnavox had a, a similar game system that was a table tennis game. And they alleged that Atari basically copied the game. They copied the uh, Magnavox version of the electronic ping pong game after uh, one of the um, directors or or, um, top personnel over at Atari had played a copy of the game at at one of the Magnavox conventions or dealerships or whatnot. So in 1976, Magnavox sued Atari. And Magnavox was really pushing to take this thing to trial. But at the end of the day, knowing how much money it was going to spend for both parties, they mutually agreed to settle. So Atari, being a young company, probably would have been more heavily impacted by the cost going to trial because this would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars, even back in the 1970s if Atari had continued. So Atari knew, too, that it wasn't in their best interest. 
and they ended up settling the case and agreeing that they could continue, Atari could continue to sell Pong in North America and on home consoles, but they had to pay a royalty fee to Magnavox. So that's how they resolved it. Now, while Pong became one of the most popular games, you know, in the early stages of, of game development back in the 70s and you know, maybe even early 80s, think about it, Atari was paying royalty fees to Magnavox. But that's one of the first lawsuits that we see in the video game industry. And from there, we jump into one that is ridiculous and even more bizarre. And that's Pac-Man. Who doesn't remember Pac-Man, right? Pac-Man was everywhere. So in the 80s, you had Pac-Man on, on ColecoVision. You had Pac-Man on home consoles. You had Pac-Man in the arcade. There was Pac-Man. Serial, cartoons, you name it, and everybody was into Pac-Man. It was huge. I remember the, the Saturday morning cartoon, right? It was just crazy how, how people love Pac-Man. And as a matter of fact, today, kids still play Pac-Man. Like there's that Namco Museum collection, and you can still find kids playing Pac-Man all the time because it's just a fun game. Simple, right? You go around the maze, you eat the dots, you eat the power-ups, you eat the ghosts, you try to move on to the next level. And it was a simple concept, but a unique concept that they, you know, created, Atari, because it was an Atari game. So Atari came up with the idea of um, Pac-Man for, for the Atari 2600 console, and they basically adopted, or, or adapted, I should say, the arcade game, the big box arcade game, in, into this home console game. So they planned the release for the 2600, and all of a sudden, before they did it, Magnavox and Philips Electronics put out their own video game called KC Munchkin. Now, KC Munchkin, if you don't know, was a direct ripoff of Pac-Man. It looked like Pac-Man. It played like Pac-Man. The only thing that was missing was Pac-Man. Everything else was identical. So it was, it was such a direct copy that it was very, very difficult for anybody who knew both games to say, wow, this, this, this isn't a complete ripoff. So in 1982, Atari, having grown since the 70s when they were dealing with Pong, they knew they had a good case. So they sued Phillips for copyright infringement. And ultimately, an appellate court found that Phillips had, in fact, copied Pac-Man almost entirely. And this is an interesting case because it's the first case to recognize how copyright law would apply to computer software. So this is really a seminal case. This is the case that um, I think started people thinking about liability and video games and how video games are part of copyright law and how stealing, misusing, infringing upon somebody's copyright in the digital space has real-world consequences, can create actual damages. So this is a, an important case because nowadays everything's digital. Apps, you know, um, things that we download, music, you name it, and, and we live in a digital world. Everything is digital. 
And so you think back and how did the law develop over time to address the digital nature of media? Well, you got to think back to the Pac-Man case because that's really where it all started. That's where I think the courts and the lawyers and uh, the companies themselves started to realize that that copyright does apply to these digital mediums. And so that's a very, very interesting case. Now, another interesting case is unlicensed Nintendo games. Right? It's, the, it's a case that was called Nintendo, Nintendo versus Tengen. And this happened um, in 1987 when Atari basically split its, its corporation into two divisions. It was Atari Games and then Tengen. And now prior to that, uh, Atari had licensing deals with Nintendo because Nintendo was licensing to everybody, right? And they were really, you know, you think about Nintendo. I mean, they were at the forefront in the 80s of video games. That was the, you know, the gold standard. If you wanted to compete, you knew you were going to go up against Nintendo. And so N Nintendo really controlled a lot of the industry, and they had these very, very strict, restrictive licensing agreements with third-party developers. In fact, third-party developers could only release five games per year, and the titles would be exclusive to Nintendo for two years. So think about that for a minute. If you were back in the 80s and you wanted to do uh, a game that was licensed by Nintendo, you could only do five a year, and you were then required to agree to the exclusivity, you know, of this two-year period. So very restrictive, uh, but that's what Nintendo wanted. They wanted to keep a high-quality product for their consumers, and so if you wanted to work with them, that's what you had to do. Well, jump back to 1987 when Atari split. Tengen tried to negotiate less restrictive licensing deals with Nintendo because now, in theory, they're two separate entities. And, of course, Nintendo refused to renegotiate, and Tengen then went to the U.S. Copyright Office to acquire the designs of Nintendo's lockout chip so that they could reverse engineer and bypass it, and then they could sell as many unlicensed video games uh, for the NES as they wanted. So in other words, right, they're trying to find a way to create their own video games that would bypass the controls that Nintendo had in place to lock out unauthorized products. Um, and, and, I mean, I guess it was a solid plan, or so they thought at the time. But of course, as soon as Nintendo found out what Tengen was doing, they launched a massive lawsuit for copyright and patent infringement. And this is the interesting part. So this thing was 1987 when, when Atari split. Would you believe that this case finally settled out of court in 1996? I mean, that's, that's over 10 years of litigation. 1996, I mean, it's not that far away, you know, when you think about the 70s and 80s, but could you imagine that? All that time, it just dragged on and ultimately they settled out of court but i mean that that's that's quite um bold for lack of a better term on tangents part to try to go in and reverse engineer um, the system so that they could produce these games crazy but they did it and ultimately settled next on the list is an interesting case concerning the new super mario brothers now this is a case that's more recent. 
And the name of the case is Nintendo versus Burton. This is a, a case where a 24-year-old Australian man, James Burt, ended up being ordered by the court to pay Nintendo $1.5 million after he managed to get an early version of the new Super Mario Brothers for the Wii and then had the brilliant idea to illegally upload the game to the Internet. So what do you think happens, right? BitTorrents and that sort of thing. Over 50,000 people downloaded in a period of five days the new Super Mario game before Nintendo released it in 2009. I mean, think about that. What what would possess somebody to do that or to think that it was okay? But if you put yourself back in the early 2000s with things like Napster and uh, downloading uh, BitTorrent or downloading files from the internet, you know, it's hard to, it's kind of hard to blame people because it was such a wild west. It was such an unknown component. You know, are you allowed to download a song? Are you allowed to upload the song? Um, with BitTorrents in particular, you know, back when they were really, really popular, you essentially were downloading bits and pieces of one file from multiple different hosts, multiple different computers. And then most of these bit, bit torrent or you know, downloading programs would have a setting where you would automatically be broadcasting or generating your signal so that other people could pull from you as a source. And that in and of itself created liability for the person that was uploading you know, the bits of, of the game. Well, back to 2009... So this, this guy, James Burt, decided that he was going to upload the game. He had over 50,000 downloads. And of course, um, you know, the Australian court ruled in favor of Nintendo, ultimately ordering this guy to pay $1.5 million. The way that they calculated it was that, that Burt had to pay Nintendo, the video game company's loss of revenue, for one full week of sale. Crazy, right? $1.5 million. That's what they calculated that that first week of sale would have been. And then they also, just for good measure, made him pay $100,000 for the company's legal bills and court fees. So, you know, one one act of, of uploading in a five-day period cost this guy a ton of money. And, you know, just think about this for a moment. If you, if you have kids or you yourself, I you know, experience this idea of downloading. Things have changed, of course. I mean, because now we're into streaming music services and you're paying royalty and licensing fees for the streaming music services. So the likelihood that you're going to find yourself accidentally, illegally downloading or uploading something is, is slim. But there are still those sites out there and a lot of it revolves around, since we're talking about video games, ROMs. So a ROM is essentially an image of a video game file. And some of it's taken from disks that are, are, you know, traditionally used in systems like PS systems or Xbox or some of the older Nintendo systems. And they are basically ripped from the disk, put onto a digital file, and then you can download them. And there's a ton of products that are out there, a ton of handheld games and consoles and 
um, games that resemble something that looks like the Nintendo um, Game Boy games or um, the Wii, the Wii U, any of these these sort of game systems that resemble uh, original systems, and they can play these ROM games. So if you think back to another lawsuit, it was uh, the Betamax versus VHS lawsuit. Basically, what was going on is that, that, that there was a lawsuit involving the ability for Sony to create a player, a VHS or Betamax player, that would record from another source. So it would, it would record another tape. So you could go tape-to-tape copying. And it was really focused on the technology, not the act of copying. Long story short, since we're not talking about that uh, today, I just wanted to highlight the fact that it was determined by the court that just because a product may be used for an infringing purpose, the product itself doesn't infringe. So fast forward to today where you've got these systems that play these ROMs, the systems and the handheld devices and the, the tech that doesn't necessarily infringe on copyright simply because it has the capability of being able to do so. So you might be able to go out and buy a system that allows you to play ROMs, but that doesn't mean that downloading a ROM is legal. In fact, Downloading ROMs are illegal. And so just be aware of that. Be aware of that with your kids. Be aware of that with yourself. All right. Next, and this is the one that I want to focus on, is the Donkey Kong versus King Kong lawsuit. So Universal, they believed back in 1982 that they had the rights to King Kong. And this is important because that that belief is questioned throughout this lawsuit. Um it was ultimately determined, by the way, that the title of King Kong, the, the 1933 film King Kong, and the intellectual property of King Kong has been, and still remains to this day, a relatively gray area. So Nintendo, or not Nintendo, I'm sorry, so Universal, they saw what Nintendo was doing in the creation of Donkey Kong. And Miyamoto, who was the creator of Donkey Kong, um, even testified during the course of the trial that he did draw inspiration from King Kong and actually did almost name Donkey Kong King Kong. However, according to Miyamoto, King Kong in uh, Japan just means large ape. But anyway, so Miyamoto comes up with the concept of Donkey Kong. And if you know the game, it's really Mario trying to save the princess from an ape on ladders and platforms and perhaps a building, right? And so Nintendo saw that as a separate idea from King Kong, the movie, but Universal didn't. So Universal sues Nintendo, and they say copyright infringement. They say we own the rights to King Kong, and this game is a direct ripoff of King Kong. You can't do it. Now, what happens ultimately is that Nintendo hires this lawyer, and his last name was Kirby, 
right? If you're a Nintendo fan, you know why that's important. And Kirby argues that Nintendo doesn't even have standing to bring this claim because, not Nintendo, I'm sorry, Universal, because Universal didn't have the rights to King Kong. They argued that King Kong was a public domain entity, that it had issued, that it had entered the public domain after the 1933 film, and that Nintendo was free and clear to use this character if they wanted, and that, you know, Universal essentially had no rights to it. Now, more importantly, Nintendo also argued that it, it was so dissimilar that uh, it, it wouldn't copy or it wouldn't constitute copyright infringement, even if Universal had the rights to it. And the court, in, in their ruling, said that at best, at best, the, the Donkey Kong video game was a parody of King Kong. And um, obviously they, they ruled in favor of Nintendo and the court strongly admonished Universal for filing a lawsuit when they knew or should have known that they didn't really have copyright protection or rights over King Kong. Funny thing, though, is that in that lawsuit, would you believe it, that Nintendo was actually awarded $1.8 million to cover their legal fees for that case. So not only did Universal file the lawsuit and lose, but they ended up having to pay $1.8 million for legal fees to Nintendo. So that was not a smart uh, decision on their part, and it's a very interesting case. Now, there's some lore, some, some lore to this whole thing, and that is that Nintendo was so thrilled with Kirby's representation that they actually named the character Kirby after the lawyer. Now, not truly been confirmed, but it, it certainly is um, believable and a possibility. So, but that's uh, that's a little bit of lore with that. That's where we believe that Kirby's name came from. You know Kirby. He's the guy that sucks up all the things, creatures, and, and whatever. Um, so that's where we believe he got his name from. All right, and, and finally, the last one we're going to talk about today is Guitar Hero. Now, let me tell you, I used to rock out on Guitar Hero. I was pretty good. I'm not good on the real guitar, but on Guitar Hero, I just, I slayed. It, let's just call it what it is. I was unstoppable on Guitar Hero. And I used to love it when they would release new songs. So the way that, that Activision worked with Guitar Hero is that they would essentially license the songs from the artist, and they would typically license cover versions of the song. So the artist would give them the rights to have a cover version, and then they would uh, put it up on, the, on either the store or the video games. Well, the Romantics, the American rock band, the Romantics, they had agreed to give the rights to What I Like About You to Guitar Hero Encore. Uh, this was back in 2007. And they said, yes, go ahead. You can use it, but it's got to be with a cover band. So Activision does. And they get a cover band to do it. And then, lo and behold, the Romantics sue Activision, and they argue that the cover band that they got sounds so much like the Romantics that it was actually infringing on their copyright. Of course, was not the case. 
because Activision was given the license. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They got um, a cover band. They, they didn't breach anything, and the band lost the lawsuit. Now, they also tried to get additional royalties out of this whole deal, which they lost too. So it was a, an unromantic lawsuit for the romantics. They, they lost. And those are my favorite video game-related lawsuits. Now, there's a bunch of other ones, and they're going to just keep coming. But these are my favorite, and they're my favorite because they're really groundbreaking. In the sense that prior to these cases, these issues hadn't really been litigated. Not in the way that they were, right? I mean, this was the advent of digital media, and it really opened the door for the laws and litigation that we see today. So this was like the founding fathers, if you will, of video game litigation. But beyond that, it also established clear rights for copyright. Um, it changed the, the nature and face of infringement and what constitutes infringement and really had to address new technologies. And we see it as technologies evolve. I mean, just think about technology in and of itself, right? When drones first became available on the consumer level, there were very few laws. Now, you fast forward to the current day, and there's all kinds of laws. There's laws about you know what you need a license for and what you have to register with the FAA and what constitutes something that needs to be registered, what's you know not uh, required because of its weight or its size, et cetera. And you know, when I think back, because one of the things I think that I, I really um, saw develop and really paid attention to was the music industry and how the, the ability when Napster first came out to so easily download music um, and what that implication of downloading the music really was, I mean, that, that's really where I saw this sort of take shape and say, hey, look at this new area of technology um, that we're, we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how the Internet is going to change our laws, change the rules. And I think that Napster and those music downloading services really – helped me see how interesting it is as technology develops, how the laws change to accommodate that. And, and, and when you think back now, in hindsight, looking back in the 70s, I mean, I, I was a kid, so I didn't really recognize what was going on. I didn't pay attention to lawsuits. And, and back in the 70s and early 80s with no Internet, um, some of this litigation just flew right over people's heads. Nobody knew that, that Pong was you know, the uh, subject of a lawsuit, or nobody knew that um, Universal thought that Donkey Kong was too similar to King Kong. But now, I look back and I look at those cases and I, I see how they really were the basis for the laws today with respect to infringement and copyright. It's great. It's really, really fascinating. And I think that these are really interesting lawsuits. If you ever want to look more deeply into them, just search them up. Uh, there's a, a ton of, uh, of literature about them, but these are my favorite. There's some others. Um, there's Grand Theft Auto litigation and things like that, but that is not something that should be discussed on this show. Um, but, you know, you can find these things all over the place, and 
Uh, I think it's very, very interesting. It's also interesting, not just from a legal standpoint, but from a business standpoint. If you have a business, you know, did, do you ever think about copyright infringement or infringing use or, um, you know, even if you're not, um, let's say, in video games where you might be publishing or creating, did you ever think about information on your website? Did you ever think about your pricing structures and things like that and copyright infringement? So um, I think that, that the video game world is not so disconnected to general business and uh, copyright infringement that you can't learn something from it. Even if you happen to be one of those people that hate video games, you can still learn something from these lawsuits. So I would encourage you, if you're interested in this topic and interested in any of the cases that I talked about, that you search them and read more about them. But they're, they're really, really interesting to me. Uh, and I can't, I can't say that every, every lawsuit out there is interesting to me. It's not. These happen to be uh, some of my favorites, and they're, they're very um, interesting from that groundbreaking standpoint that I talked about. All right, well, that's going to do it. Thanks for joining me. Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends and family about UTL Radio. Let them know um, all the things that we have to offer. And, and tell them to uh, tune in. Don't forget to rate the podcast over on iTunes. That's going to do it. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Understanding the Law Radio. Make sure you follow Peter on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And stay tuned for future episodes.